Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161T35, Christian Economics. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 127, July the 26th, 1986. I have with me today a couple of good friends, both involved in the economic sphere, Dan Harris and James Flanagan. And we are going to discuss certain aspects of the economy. I'm going to begin by referring to the U.S. News and World Report for July 28, 1986, quoting just a small part of this article, Latest Boom, Suing Your Banker. It refers to the case, one case among a great many, in which the six hunts, to 23 banks billion dollars. Quoting now from the article, the Hunts case is probably the largest to date. The brothers have sued 23 banks to the tune of 3.6 billion dollars, charging them with fraud and collusion in trying to force their troubled Placid Oil and Penrod drilling companies out of business. Critics claim the brothers are simply trying to win time until oil prices recover, something the Hunt camp denies. First National Bank of Chicago has fired back with a $440 million counterclaim, but one banker echoes the Hunt's charges, saying, the perception in the banking community is that the lenders said they're good for it and will get the money. The bankers contend that some of the same banks are making loan collection concessions with other, less well-financed companies. Conspiracy has emerged as one of the most frequent charges cited in lender liability cases. In April, for example, California canners and growers sued the Bank of America and a group of other banks for getting together to determine which member firms were likely to survive and for pulling the plug on those deemed to be the weakest. Other charges have been that banks renege on oral or written promises or that they interfere in management. In the Farrow case, State National Bank of El Paso was threatened to, had threatened to cut off credit when William Farrow, who was in semi-retirement, tried to regain control of his clothing company from bank-supported management. In another ground-breaking case, a jury awarded KMC Company, a Knoxville grocery firm, $7.5 million because Irving Trust cut off its credit without prior notice. A case filed by the Jewel Company, a California apple grower, accused Bank of America of a wide range of missteps. The Jewell family charged that the bank interfered with management by encouraging it to invest borrowed money in an ailing company it did business with, one that was also a Bank of America borrower. In addition, the Jewell said the bank, which also lent to Jewell's competitors, cut off funds without adequate notice. The Jewells went bankrupt, losing even their family home until friends and neighbors loaned them $50,000 to buy it back. 
The family won a $22.2 million award, now under appeal. We're hanging on by our fingernails, says George Jewell, a grandson of the founder. End of quote. Now, the picture that emerges from this is that many banks apparently are calling in the loans not on companies that cannot pay or are having trouble paying, but on those that can pay to penalize them because they have the cash. In other words, they're cannibalizing the economy. The other companies are going to go under but they're going to destroy the ones that are strong by calling in their loans. And uh, I believe this is something that's happening quite extensively, and the number one cannibal is probably the federal government. Any comment, Dan? Well, yes, Rush. For many years now, you've spoken out against the problems of incurring debt. And uh, although it wasn't the Bible who said neither a lender nor a borrower be, yet that is in many cases the best advice. I'm also reminded of a popular saying, people's the new golden rule, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. Unfortunately, it appears that when a bank lends you the money, it's not your money. They still think of it as their money and are perfectly willing, apparently, to interfere in what you are doing with their money. What's happened in the area of the economy and the bond market that uh, is related to this whole uh, business of cannibalizing the economy? Well, that's a good question, Rush. Uh, Otto Scott made a very good point a couple of days ago that the bond market, the U.S. government bond market, is about 15 times as large as the stock market, which, as we all know, is billions of dollars. And many people today are thinking long and hard about taking all the risks in setting up a business. For instance, a manufacturer who would need to get the loans and get the environmental approvals and all the regulatory approvals for a factory and the labor disputes and the legal fees, etc., to make 2, 3, 4% net return on his money when he can put a similar amount of money into a government bond and make 6% and have the full faith and credit of the government backing him up. So that seems to be a major trend today, which is resulting also in the cannibalizing of, of capital, which should be going into uh, more manufacturing. James, do you have any comment on this? Well, I'd say in the particular case of the Hunt brothers, uh, it's particularly fascinating that here is the most, the wealthiest family in the world in 1980, and of course had a vested interest in all of the inflationary hedges, whether sugar, silver, oil, oil drilling, and really the, it came to focus with these banks when the price of crude dropped from 20 to $10 a barrel in virtually two months period of time. All of a sudden, the creditors, which had loaned out this money, assuming that they would be getting $20 a barrel, are in an uncomfortable position of wondering whether they're going to get paid. So specific to that case is difficult, but the ramifications are for someone, of course, who is committed to a runaway inflationary scenario which the hunts were in really trying to manipulate markets, as has happened all through history, has what resulted in a crack-up, washout of that, say, financial wealth in that family. And, of course, going back through history, it was very much in vogue in the early part of the century to run a corner on a market or to try to 
uh, manipulate a market, and each of history has to tell us that someone who tries to accumulate that kind of wealth, particularly in a non-productive asset such as silver, winds up in, in all kinds of trouble. And certain of them, were, of course, were the, the Joseph Leiter in 1897 tried to corner the wheat market and wound up going through millions upon millions of, mar uh, of dollars. And, of course, the hunts just haven't learned from that lesson, and they're in a very tenuous spot right now. And certainly if this deflationary scenario continues to play on out, these banks do have a danger of not getting their money out of these, out of these people. Dan? I think that uh, what James has said is accurate in some areas, but in a couple areas I would take some exception. From reports that I read, the Hunt family during the height of the silver market only had 13% of the futures contracts in silver. Well, they did have a large amount of, of actual physical silver in possession, yet that's estimated that many of the countries around the world totaling up all their silver dwarfed the amount that the Hunts had. So they were actually made uh, a fall guy for these other people. And what isn't also generally known is that Armand Hammer made approximately $100 million in the short side of silver starting two days after a private meeting with Paul Volcker. This has been around for a few years here. But I, I would tend to feel that the Hunts, like you said, are still banking on inflation and are having problems there, like many others are. But I think they've gotten an unfair... Uh, black mark for trying to corner a market when they really it doesn't appear that they were actually anywhere near a corner. What do you see as the future of the economy say in the next year and a half or two years? Let's hear from both of you on this. Who wants to lead? Well, first of all, I'd be happy to. Uh, it's difficult to say from a standpoint of looking at statistics and what's going to happen to the GNP and what's going to happen to employment figures and things of that nature. I am not interested essentially in what those figures are going to do. I'm interested in how they're going to relate and what the market's going to do. And I do look at the market as an anticipator, a discounter of future economic activity. And a good example of that is right now you're seeing an awful lot of bearish statistics come out, a lot of gloom about the economy, and yet the stock market on its most recent decline has had about an 8% correction off the high, which is a very shallow correction in what has been a four-year bull market. So I think the stock market at this point is saying that, that things are not nearly as bad as they're being painted in the media. And of course, when you have, a, say, a violent correction like we have these last two weeks, uh, it gives people the jitters and it, it enables, of course, people to purchase stock at very cheap prices and uh, position on the market and say an average correction. And of course, at that point in time, that's when the public is the most bearish and anticipating lower prices. So the, uh, as far as the bond market and the stock market are concerned, uh, it's really the, the economy is on a fairly steady course, and at least for the near term. And if the forecasting I have in stocks and bonds says anything, then we should see uh, some of these statistics like GMP and what have you should fall in line with market prices and the stock prices, which is to say that, uh, that the economy is not in the disastrous shape it's, it's being painted or potentially as, and uh, moving into recession. Now, that scenario can change by next year, but I am looking for, say, higher prices. Some of my forecasting work points to higher, say, through January to March of next year uh, of 87, and that would be both in stocks and bonds, meaning higher prices and equities and lower interest rates for another six months. Might it not be fair to say that the media is telling us what the economy is right now, 
and the market what it is going to be tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. The, the market really does anticipate what's going to happen in the underlying statistics anywhere from 6 to 12 months in advance. So what you're seeing is second quarter GMP coming out at, at 2% higher is, is really looking at past history. And the market is forward-looking and uh, is anticipating that, that things will, there'll be some kind of a resurgence and things that are not so bad. So the people, one thing that uh, Dan and I both do is that we're great believers in looking at the market and market prices as the true test of, of the underlying strength in a market and look at, at fundamentals, which is underlying statistics uh, that most economists look at for strengthening the economy, really as telegraphing uh, past history. Things that, uh, that uh, different economic statistics are in the hopper maybe for six months. And uh, you know, certainly monetary policy, you look at it right now, well, it doesn't turn into inflation, monetary inflation for six to 12 months, just the, the statistics if you have, say, uh, an economy that's picking up, it won't, it won't show up in statistics for, for perhaps six months to a year. So we look at prices as the true test of a market and uh, the genuine reflection of what's happening in the economy as opposed to looking at the statistics. Dan, what's your reaction? I would say that uh, James said it quite well and just add to it that there are three basic ways to to trade a market, whether it's the stock market or housing market or anything else a person is in. Uh, one approach is called the fundamental, one approach is called technical or from graphs, and another approach is psychological and everything else that includes. And most people, when they see things happening, they want to know why. We're curious as individuals. And yet, they don't recognize that so many events of history that have been years and years past we still don't know exactly why. For instance, we don't know exactly why President Kennedy was shot. Many different theories around there, and it's been 24 years. And so when someone asks why the market went up today, it's very difficult to know why. I think that we have incomplete information, and we also have misinformation, some of that very deliberate uh, by various vested interests. Uh, this is not to say that everything that happens is a result of some conspiracy because the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. What James and I have found, uh, this is the first time we've actually met, although we've talked on the phone several times over the past few months. We were back introduced by you, Reverend Rushdini. Uh, James and I have found we have a similar approach uh, to understanding future trends of a market. And this is although I am a member of the Mercantile Exchange, trading on the floor in the middle of the bedlam, and James is somewhat removed in, in an office and trading just maybe from a little more peace and quiet than I have. Yet we both have found the same thing, which is that uh, the charts don't lie. Just like a ship captain going through an unfamiliar uh, part of the ocean trusts in his nautical charts and his nautical maps looking for shoals and rocks and islands and things. We also look very closely at graphs of prices. We know that those exact prices that have traded today are well known by everyone and they don't lie. Whereas how many acres of corn there are out there and, and what the Fed is going to do with inflation or whatever, nobody seems to know until quite some time later. Charts don't lie about the past, but when you go in the market, you're dealing with the present and the future. 
James has done some outstanding work on this, on some long-term things. And you know, there's an old story that history repeats itself. And what does that mean? There, I would say, there are some similarities and some differences, but there are some amazing things that seem to come up again and again. And you'd have to say that the charts, in a way, reflect human nature. Why don't you tell them what you noticed in silver cycles, James? Well, one of the uh, uh, most fascinating cycles I've seen, and, and a lot of it goes back to doing a lot of longer-term research and having prices going back a long period of time and seeing different periods of history reflected through prices in silver, um, both the inflationary and deflationary, and then, of course, the 1929 bull market in stocks, and see how that reacts and interacts with the silver market. And uh, one cycle that really predominates in that market is the 60-year cycle. And you look at it and you see the 1980 highs, of course. You go back to 1920 and that was the previous high. In fact, it was one month off 60 years ago. And then you go to 60 years prior to that and you have your third major high in the last two centuries. So each of them are periodic and 60 years apart. And we were just speculating, of course, that uh, we're going to have to stick around a long time before <laughs> 2040 rolls around. Uh, but uh, it te the tendency of the markets, whether it's the bonds or the stock market or the silver, is that these things uh, come along. And uh, two particular markets that have really been in vogue have been the glamour markets uh, for the last three years have been the stock and the bond markets. And in order to trade those markets, with, if you, I have found if you didn't have historic precedents, you were at a serious liability for forecasting these markets. Um, in the stock market, you have to go back to the 1930s to see a market that's anywhere near comparable. And in the bond market, you have to go back to the 30s also. So if you've been weaned on the markets, maybe you're an old-timer. You've been around since 1945. Well, that's 40 years. You're, you know, you've been around the industry. You have not seen markets as we're experiencing today. And uh, so much of the longer-term work is going back to the 30s, see what happens. If these longer-term cycles occur, uh, we're in the biggest bull market ever in bonds. And in order to trade it, you have to have some blueprint uh, in order to play it. And, and I found that not only... Are there the parameters in general uh, the same for the 30s and 20s, but they're almost identical. The market progresses in the same number of months, moves up the same number of points, corrections seem to occur in the same number of days down from any high, and it really is astounding, and the more that, uh, that, we, that we dig into it, uh, um, the more the similarities really can be looked to to be profitable. One thing that's interesting in a very long-term cycle on that, uh, looking at one of James's charts, monthly prices of government bonds. And the all-time high, as far as we can go back, was just under 110 in February of 1936, about 50 years ago. And it dropped down to a low of just around 55, which is exactly half of that, uh, you know, if you subtract it in half. And markets, this is one of the most uh, well, reliable indicators of a market, when a market will drop to half price things come back. So we think it may, it's at the drop of the halfway point, it's come back up to about 105, selling off a bit here. We may, after a few more months, have a substantial run up to above that 110 area. We may be seeing the all-time highs for government bonds for the century. Now, how could this be when there are so many um, loans outstanding in the third world that may default, which is supposedly making interest rates go worse? and other things. I think that may have something to do with some very serious societal problems that may be around the corner here. After all, it's 
It's a combination of supply and demand. If you don't have people that want to borrow money, interest rates drop, and I think we may be seeing some problems there in the future. Well, I don't know enough to uh, challenge what either of you say. Thank goodness. Uh, or to agree with you or to disagree with you. But what always uh, comes to mind whenever I hear anybody talk about the charts and the statistics and what they reveal uh, is this, to cite one of a number of things. And it's this, since the markets have been created in the Western world, we have had, in varying degrees, freedom of the marketplace. As a result, the market has been able to function with a relative freedom and been able to establish patterns that are indications of a free market economy. But that free market is beginning to disappear here as elsewhere. And we are seeing controls of various sorts wipe out one area of industry after another. And if half of what the Republicans and especially Democrats have planned for us in the next few years occurs, I don't see how the past is going to be any indication because now you're going to have a dramatic and a growing interference with the marketplace. Of course, uh, it could be that it'll be like the gambler who was gambling uh, at this one illegal gambling place and somebody told him who walked in just looking around and said, uh, what are you gambling here for? Don't you know that every game in this house is crooked? And the man said, I know it, but it's the only game in town. <laughs> <laughs> well, Russ, that's a very, very interesting that you've brought those things up. Uh, being the knowledgeable person of history that you are, you probably remember that in the past there have been times when markets have been outright closed mm -hmm. or changed. For instance, World War One, the stock market was closed for a few years with no speculation whatsoever. Commodity markets at various times have been closed or had certain contracts uh, removed from speculation. During the Korean War, soybeans had a limit put on their price for the highest that they were allowed to trade. And so I wouldn't be surprised if what you said comes true, that there will be more interference in the future. We've had uh, an interesting decade, or 14 years, since 1971 when Nixon, President Nixon took us off the gold standard. All foreign currencies at that time were allowed to float freely, and uh, the Mercantile Exchange, where I trade in Chicago, started foreign currency futures in May of 72. And that's been a tremendous success. It's allowed companies that are involved in import and export to protect their profit margins and not be wiped out by a, a sudden flurry of the currency. Well, now, if you look in the news, there's quite a bit of talk about going back to fixed exchange rates. Even though there's many, many years of failure for that, they don't like what the free market has told them, which is that governments cannot seem to keep their currencies under control. No, they can't. Well, the thing that I, I come across with most people say that they do, they say we're in a new day and age and that the markets aren't the same as the 20s and therefore how can you, you know, look for those kind of precedences in the past. But uh, the way I found it is that, of course, every time the government gets involved, 
they increase the volatility of a price, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, price support programs uh, in agricultural products or whether it's you know, monkeying with the money supply, things like that. So they do have a direct control over the amplitude of prices and the volatility of prices, but there is an underlying, much of the work we do is that there's an underlying cyclical pattern to things that while they may aggravate the situation one way or the other, and indeed they do, and we are in the most volatile times this past decade, inflationary decade uh, through the 70s, and now this deflationary period from 1980 is, is monumental as far as history is concerned. But we found that, cyclically speaking and time-wise, that you can depend on lows and highs coming at certain periods. You may have a difficulty in determining how far up they may go in sheer price, but you can depend on those cyclical patterns uh, reoccurring. And in fact, the news and government action tends to occur in favor of the prevailing trend. So you may have the trend is up, and sure enough, what does the government come in, but they aggravate the situation so the market moves up even further. So in a market, and, and then, in fact, a market that's a bull market will tend to ignore bearish news or bad news. So it's that underlying form or pattern in the market that we look for. And uh, then we do have to come to grips. Our next thing to come to grips with is how high our price is going to go. And some of the work that Dan and I do is, is fairly unique in that, uh, in that way because when you do go into all-time new highs, how do you decide where the market's going to stop and how do you know where to get out of the market? I would agree with what James said and add one other uh, counterpoint to it. It's a foundation in Pittsburgh called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. That's I'm familiar with it. And they've, they've done one particular area of research that's not talked about very much, but it's extremely important. They've been able to take any set of numbers, whether it's actual crop figures, um, a price of a stock, and they've even done it with a set of random numbers. And they've been able to apply uh, Fourier analysis and some of these other computer programs and they've been able to determine cycles, even in a group of random numbers. But the, the catch is this. When you go beyond that period of data that they research, whether it's a period of numbers or a period of time, the cycles don't repeat themselves. So you can have all sorts of charlatans now going around saying they've discovered the hidden mm -hmm. 5, 10, and 13-day cycles in some various item, and they can prove it and show it that it's exactly worked. The problem is as soon as you buy their course and, and take it home and start trading, you <laughs> lose money. <laughs> so cycle research is a double-edged sword. And the thing to look for is for the broad trends, timing trends, but not become too mathematically oriented. Let me add this just as a footnote to what I said earlier. Most of your statistics on the market and its patterns have been based on English and American data the points of the greatest stability in recent centuries. And even when there have been shutdowns in the markets or one branch or another of the market, it has been a temporary thing and everyone has known it's just for the duration of a war or a particular crisis. I think the data from those records is very valuable in that it tells us something about the operation of the free market. The question in my mind was, will we have the same stability in the years just ahead? And will we have figures that are as valid? Uh, I, 
I don't know the answer. I think we'll know by the end of this century what the answer to that uh, problem is. That's a very good point, Rush. Now, uh, was there something on your mind, James, about uh, some other direction we should take in this discussion? Well, I'd, I'd just add this as far as, as, as news related from a standpoint of the investor. Uh, he has to reach some kind of level of sophistication as far as, as reading the market or getting the right kind of people to read the market. And, you know, we touched on the fundamentals, and really the, the media puts up smoke signals, really, that, that causes a herd instinct in the markets. And people start, you know, reading the writing on the wall as the media paints it, and it's misleading. Um, one chart that, that we were looking, I would say this from a, a narrower focus, we were looking at a bond chart, Dan and myself, last night. And in the, the most historic move ever in bonds as far as prices coming down, which was just four months ago, was the biggest single move over a period of, of successive weeks, three or four weeks. Uh, sure enough, the Graham Rudman uh, uh, was ruled unconstitutional on the low day in bond prices, which is the high day in interest rates. So what you'd interpret as a very bearish potential scenario there, you'd say, well, if the Graham Rudman's illegal, then they can't, you know, put a cap on the government deficit. Well, sure enough, that came out on the low day. And if you look at charts over history, invariably the most bullish news comes out on the top, the most bearish news comes out on the bottom, and the public is buying it. They're buying the highs and selling the lows. So there's a certain amount of sophistication which has to be gained for the trader um, as far as dealing with these markets and not believing what is out there for mass human consumption. And that's what it's there for. The Wall Street Journal, uh, Los Angeles Times, tends to cause that herd instinct. And, uh, you know, one of the particular things that I do every day, I read the Wall Street Journal just to see if it's overwhelmingly one way or the other. And if it's overwhelmingly bullish, I know I can sell. If it's overwhelmingly bearish, I know it's time to buy. And uh, um, Dan might add, add a little something about, you know, buying blood in the street, when the blood's in the street, and it really does go back <laughs> to that. <laughs> well, that's supposedly attributed to Baron Rothschild back in the mid-1800s when he was uh, buying government securities and someone said to him Baron why are you why are you buying when there's blood running in the streets and he just simply replied that is the time to buy of course how do you know if it's only going to be someone else's blood or your own <laughs> many people have bought things low only to sell lower <laughs> started up also in Chicago and each of these five or six groups are the main financial centers in the U.S. They tend to have specialties. They have interesting histories in how they began, uh, some of them ethnic and some of them uh, religious. And now there's been a little more of a crossing the lines between the two. But the main difference people need to keep in mind is between what is a stock and what is a commodity. A stock is not cattle or horse, which is the old term, for them, but it's considered a share of ownership in a registered corporation in this country. It would be like owning a piece of a piece of Prudential or a piece of IBM. You have a share in its ownership and a dividend and a voting right if you have common stock. And what you're hoping for is income through dividends and appreciation through the company doing well, paying out more dividends, being generally prosperous, and therefore being more desirable in the public's eye, therefore having your price 
of their stock go up, making a capital gain. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a commodity is an actual, real agricultural product in its original definition. For instance, orange juice, cotton, wheat, corn, oats, those sorts of things. Now, in this century, there's been a move towards expanding the definition of commodities and expanding the ways that you can speculate on the prices of stocks and commodities. First of all, as far as expanding the definition, now gold and silver are considered commodities. Well, you could see that might be all right. Then lumber came on board. Sugar came on board. Uh, Onions were on for a while and they were taken off. But then in the 1970s, with the uh, Nixon closing the gold window when foreign currency being allowed to float, and then 1975, gold being allowed to be owned by the public for the first time in almost 40 years. You have, an ex- and then in the late 1970s, people starting to trade government securities. Those also became called commodities, although it doesn't seem like there's too much in common between a bank T-bill or a bank CD and uh, a bushel of wheat, yet they're both considered commodities and traded as such because they're real products. Now what's happened is in the 19, early part of this century, especially in the 1920s, people were allowed to trade the stock market on speculation with only having to put down 10% in order to buy stock. And this is part of what fueled the speculative boom and then later on the, the bust. Well today there's a similar type of speculation in that you can buy options on stocks and options on commodities. So for instance, right now, uh, IBM is around $133 per share. If you were to go and buy 100 shares, which is the normal amount that you buy, you'd have to put up $13,300. And if you think it's only going to go up $5 per share, you'd make a total of $500 for your $13,000 investment. Well, brokerage firms are allowed by law to loan you up to 50% of that, but still even putting up six or $7,000, you'd only make 500 on that with risking so much at stake. On the other hand, you can buy an option on IBM stock and maybe only put up $200 and hope to double your money or triple your money. There's been a huge move of capital out of the actual securities into what seems to be almost a purely speculative industry. It's somewhat comparable to a side bet in Las Vegas, although there's all the difference in the world between a commodity and a blackjack hand. What's also happened is there are options on commodities, too. So you have a huge amount of money moving into the fringes, and the tail starts to wag the dog after a while. But I think it's important that people recognize that speculation is very different from gambling. For instance, if all of the slot machines were to overnight disappear, there would be no economic hardship to the way we conduct our society. A number of questionable individuals may be out of work, (laughs) but uh, still there would be no impact on whether there's food in the stores or whether there's gasoline for your car. Whereas if all of a sudden all the wheat in this country were to disappear or the Chicago Board of Trade to not allow speculation on wheat, there'd be very severe hardships for numbers of people in a very vital part of this country. Now, the area of, of trading futures and commodities is as old as the Chinese, going back several thousand years B.C., where they, the actual rice farmers wanted to have a guarantee for their price of their rice. But the millers 
who would process it and the middlemen didn't want to pay for it until harvest time because then there's all sorts of rice around and they can bid a very low price so individuals came along in the meantime willing to guarantee the rice farmers a price and there they were hoping that it would go up and this would give some of the rice farmers working capital now those speculators were were sure hoping to make something by doing neither the planting nor the distributing but they performed a very vital need and without that the price would have fluctuated much more and that's actually been the case right in this own in this country of ours onions used to be traded on the commodity market and they fluctuated as much as a hundred percent in one year well there were some complaints by onion growers that the prices were manipulated so by federal law it's one commodity that's not allowed to be traded on the commodity markets and the ten years since right after trading onion futures was banned the prices fluctuated an average of 300 percent per year <laughs> so uh, although speculators are called greedy and grasping and ignorant and trying to capitalize on things and yet history does show they don't call me that Dan <laughs> <laughs> it does tend to keep prices in a narrower band so this is a, a vital function now many people have saved up funds from working hard all their lives and they just don't feel right about putting their money into uh, a bank account and just getting a CD and they wonder well, what can I do to make my money work for me and that's what's come what's brought about the interest in having so many financial advisors today with so many different ways that you can earn money some of these are more speculative than others uh, what's important is to have an individual who has a track record for trading and has a particular method of trading otherwise they're just a, an order taker for you some of the work that, that Jim does is unique in that unlike many uh, traders he does his long-term homework and if someone wants to know where's the market going he'll say well maybe up this week down for the month up for the year maybe down by next year so you have to give him a time time scale there but one of the big questions that does come up is you know if you have a profit where do I take my profit you know where, when is enough enough mm -hmm. incidentally any of you listening who are in the Los Angeles area can hear and see uh, James Flanagan on television channel 22 isn't it channel 22 the financial station yes yes at what time of the day uh, it's on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, either at 8.55 in the morning or 1.20 in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Now, would you like to comment on what Dan had to say? Well, I would bring it up a little bit up to date as far as the uh, the evolution of the markets. Um, traditionally, when you think of a commodity, it's something that you can, is, is deliverable. In other words, if you buy wheat, someone is going to deliver it to you, or if you sell it short, you're going to deliver it to someone. And that, of course, is the same in the gold market and in the currencies and what have you. Well, we have the establishment of some commodities now where there really is no delivery of the underlying commodity. Uh, one good example is the stock index futures, uh, of which there's about five futures and eight options on different indices. Uh, that would be, for example, the, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and there's a futures contract that trades off of the 30 Dow Jones industrials. Well, for someone who purchases a major market index, which is the futures that trade on that, 
you can't physically deliver each individual share that makes up the basket of this contract. So here you have a contract that is not a deliverable contract. So that is an interesting shift. It's a financial instrument that has doesn't have the underlying commodity as uh, as a tangible type asset that can go from a buyer to a seller. Um, the implications of that are, are I don't understand all the ramifications for that, but uh, it is starts to border on as opposed to speculation. I won't say gambling but it isn't in the same vein. It is a new instrument. It's, it's new on the horizon. And a more recent one is, just in the last month and a half, is the Commodity Research Bureau Inflation Index, which is a basket of 27 commodities. So you're not speculating on what you think an individual commodity is doing. You're speculating on what you think the whole gamut of commodities, silver, copper, wheat, soybeans, each of these commodities are included in the index. So you have an opportunity of spe speculating and anticipating whether you think there will be a general deflation in prices over, overall or an inflation in prices. And I would go back to what Dan mentioned, that, that people are not satisfied with the returns that they're getting in, say, bonds or stocks and what have you. And, and I'll just say it from my end of it, since I'm in the retail commodity business, there is an explosion of activity for people out there used to the 13% returns now getting 5.5% on their T-bills, and they all of a sudden they say commodities. This sounds like the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, of course, they find out soon enough that unless they have the, they're aligned with the right people, that they're, they can run into some, you know, some very big problems. Um, just briefly, though, Rush, I'd say this, that, that we are, uh, it's possible we're in the eye of a storm, and both Dan and myself view that as these are the greatest, most sophisticated markets that have ever existed in history by far. And the profit potential and loss is, uh, is unparalleled. So we are in a unique spot. It's just for, it's, I, I find that we're both very optimistic about the potential for making money in the markets, whether we're as optimistic about the underlying fundamentals in the economy. That's a whole other subject. But uh, this, this is, we are seeing markets of historic proportions. And, you know, history would teach us, of course, that sooner, at some point, the government will come in and they will uh, limit market activity or eliminate the markets. It's inevitable. And certainly we have the situation right now uh, set for a speculative bubble bar none, you know, second to none in history. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I won't mention any names. Uh but you would recognize the name, someone not too far from you, who was in the commodity market and found out how real it was because they got busy and didn't keep in touch with their broker and came back home and found to their horror that a carload of pork bellies was on their way to them. <laughs> it was a very real market. <laughs> Still is, if you're not careful. You'll get delivery. I'd like to read something from the July Better Investing magazine, the editorial, just the first half of it. And I quote, Yes, you can lose by taking a profit. One of the dangers we face as investors in a high stock market is the temptation to give up a good stock because we can get a good price for it. After all, as the old saying goes, you can't lose by taking a profit. The logic of that statement seems irrefutable. Yet by taking a profit on a good stock, it is possible to lose out on the 10, 20, or 100 times multiplication 
that comes with a long-term holding of growing companies. A 50% or 100% profit is impressive, but not at the expense of losing greater multiplication. As we look back on stocks that appeared in Better Investing as stocks to study 20 or 25 years ago and see them up 1,000% or more and still moving upwards, it is clear that holding on to a good growing company is an investment strategy that pays off. Converting stocks into cash for a handsome profit is rewarding if we know of a better place to put our money so that above average growth can continue. But just selling to get cash and lock in profits can be self-defeated. Cash is a depreciating asset. While we have won the battle against the high inflation rates of a few years ago, even at today's low inflation, it doesn't take long for money to be worth less, unquote. Any comments? Do you want to start, James? Well, I would say that the uh, that's the most common mistake for traders that I uh, come in, in contact with is, you know, using that Wall Street maxim, you know, you can't go broke taking a profit, and foregoing the appropriate Wall Street maxim, which is cut your losses short and let your profits run. And and I'm sure Dan would agree with me that you have to you have to force yourself. It's easy to want to take a profit and lock in a profit. It's very difficult to stay in a position and be patient. And certainly what tends to happen more times than, than I care to count is that a market always goes further and faster than you originally anticipated. So if you get out prematurely, you're going to miss out, uh, you're going to miss out on the tremendous moves. Now, to give you an idea, psych psychologically speaking, it's very difficult for a trader. Uh, by definition, in particularly in the commodity market that I deal with, when you implement that strategy of letting profits run and cutting losses, you're going to take more losses than profits. I do. I go into the office every week knowing I'm going to take more losses than profits. And sometimes you can run into five, six, seven losses in a row before you get on a profit that's going to yield you all of that loss and then some. Uh, so there, there's, there, that is one psychological motive that, that traders have to come to grips with, and hardly any of them do. Uh, they, they will tend to either be random in their system, in, in one instance taking profits as soon as they get them, in other ch instances they may let them run, but there's no consistency. And as a trader, you have to be absolutely consistent. And what I found, it, in order to maintain your learning curve and knowing what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, and I found that the only way to make money, and big money, is to get into a position that you believe in, that's going to move much higher, have some vision as to where it's going to be two, three years down the road, as opposed to what it's going to do next week, because there may be a buyout and the price does double in one week. If it's a sound underlying stock or commodity, uh, I feel I deserve everything that's coming to me by forecasting it correctly, and that just that I try to impress upon myself all the time being patient with the winner, staying with it. Sure, use a, a stop-loss order in order to get you out if a certain amount of that profit is taken away. And usually that is no worse than break-even once I have a nice profit. But uh, um, this would be a Wall Street maxim that I hear often. You know, it's an old Wall Street saw that's been around for 100 years, I guess. Uh, you know, you never go broke taking a profit. I've never seen anyone get rich taking a profit uh, in that context. Dan? I would agree with what James said and just add in that many times people ask me 
what are my trading rules? You know, what uh, rules do I follow when I'm trading at the Mercantile Exchange? And I, I have several, but I'll just bring to your attention two or three of the most important. Uh, my number one rule is I never enter a trade unless I have up-to-date graphs. And I would say this would be true. I would encourage everyone, if they're thinking about buying a stock or investing in a company, go to their local library and check out the value line survey or look at Moody's and just take a look at the history, the last few months, last few years of that particular stock. It doesn't take a, a college education to look at it and see if the trend is up or the trend is down. The graphs are very simple even for an unsophisticated person to see. If it looks like the trend is up, that's a good starting point. The second rule I follow, absolutely as important as the first one, is before I enter a trade, I decide ahead of time where I will take my loss, like if it drops down to a certain place when I'll sell out, or where I'm going to take my profit, my profit objective on the upside. And I have to decide that before I enter the trade because as soon as I get in, I'm married to it. And I start thinking about all the reasons it's going to do what I was so smart in figuring out in the first place. And if it starts going against me, I'll close my ears and I'll just be my own worst enemy. Now for the longest trend, long-term traders, I would just add a third rule, which is having set your profit objective and your loss objective, don't get out until the trend changes. Otherwise, you're trading money instead of trading the market. And a person who says, well, I've got a nice profit, is not looking at the market, they're looking at money. And money does not tell you how to make money. It's a byproduct, just like happiness is a byproduct of doing the right thing. One thing I've noticed over the years is this. When I was quite young, the situation was dramatically different as far as the market for the overwhelming majority of people in it was concerned. Thus, I can recall over the years, up until the 60s, any number of men who would tell their widow as they talked about the future, now everything's taken care of, I've got money and such and such stocks, you don't need ever to touch them, they will take care of you to your dying day. They are good companies that will produce year in and year out. The volume of trading in a day was very small in those days because the companies were there to stay. They paid good dividends and people would buy a stock to hold it very often for life. Now it's very different. The market is uh, made up of people who are in and out constantly. The volume of tra trading is astronomical. Uh, would you like to comment on that situation, either of you or both of you? Well, I would say that there, there are several reasons why the amount of trading has gone up. Um, one reason is that you've got a large growth of pension funds and people providing for their pensions as the population of the U.S. has expanded and the stock market has been the darling or where the prudent man 
managing a pension fund would put his money. Uh, now, why they are going in and out of stocks, I don't know. Maybe you would know, James. But as far as the volume of trading goes, they do have the largest input. Uh, so it would be important to see what are the, the changes over the years regarding how pension funds handle the large sums of money that they're putting in and out of the stock market. Are people counting as much on dividends today as they are on appreciation? Well, I re recently read a study which said that approximately half, if you take the profits in the stock market, approximately half come from dividends and half from price appreciation. It's that, that much of, a, of an important factor, and yet it's not often figured into uh, people's decision. It would be, I, that would probably be a longer term figure um, because while dividends are important or say coupon interest from bonds, it, it really needs to be looked at secondarily if that. Um, this, the last four years in the stock market, you're up 150% in four years, which you know, amounts to about 30% a year. Well, if you're getting dividends of 7%, they really pale in comparison. Uh, in the bonds, you're getting a coupon rate of 8%, and yet you've seen bonds, as Dan mentioned, move from 55 almost to 110. So, and in fact, the bonds have been more volatile on a percentage move basis than the stock market. So you're, you're seeing uh, tremendous volatility uh, in what is traditionally a conservative assets. And anybody, anyone who gets caught looking at dividends or, or you know, rate of return, coupon rate on bonds, is really missing the bigger picture, which is, is a tremendously volatile market. Um, I'll say one thing that's in passing, uh, one cycle that we've seen uh, as very effective a long-term cycle has been the 50-year cycle. And I'm sure you know, Rush, what occurred through the 70s, many of the newsletter writers would touch on the Kondratiev wave as a, as a very effective indicator of periods of inflation versus deflation and also optimism, pessimism, that type of thing. And one, I'd say, point that really comes home uh, currently is we have seen the biggest bull market ever in bonds. Interest rates have tumbled more quickly. But what we're seeing is that successively greater bouts of inflation and stimulus are propelling us to lower and lower levels of productivity. So that continues intact, in and ultimately that would lead to, say, a, a bear market down the road. But from the 70s, early 70s, each time we've had this inflationary bout or an injection from the Federal Reserve and what have you, there have been lower levels, lower highs of productivity in the economy. And that's what's occurring right now. And it fits in very nicely with the long-term Kondratiev wave, which essentially said that the, uh, that the markets topped out in the 70s, productivity topped out in the 70s, that there could be a plateau period. And then we would see general deflation leading to more pessimism and lower prices <clears throat> over the succeeding decades. And I have to say that uh, uh, many of the people that use that as an indicator uh, of things, and it really was in vogue to talk about the Kondratiev wave in the 70s, saying here we are in the, mm -hmm. in the topping pattern. It's not getting as much credence right now when it's working, and it's, it's the most effective. It's, I mean, that cycle has been right on. So we've seen uh, uh, in general commodities, whether it's the Commodity Research Bureau or what have you, uh, we've seen a decline in percentage decline in commodity prices, which is the largest in 50 years, taking it as a basket of commodities. Let me throw out something now. 
over the years we've seen ups and downs since 1970 in the economy and the market and when these things happen I see the difference in the giving to Calcedon and as I talk to church leaders various groups across country I consistently find that uh, some groups go under when you have these receptions especially those that are in debt but this year is very peculiar Several times lately at conferences, I've heard from a number of groups how very critical the uh, situation is right now with regard to giving. Your big TV uh, evangelists are finding it to be the same. The uh, economy as a whole seems to be bad, but the stock market looks good. Now, how do you account for that difference this time? Well, first of all, Rush, I'd say you should probably give us a chart of the uh, the uh, offerings that you get. We could probably forecast where you'll be in the next couple of years. <laughs> if it's bad, we won't tell you. <laughs> but uh, it's it's true. The, there's segments of the economy, and as you know, we've been talking about being technicians and not fundamentalists. So I don't dig into the fundamentals, knowing what's happening in different segments of the economy. But just briefly, I would say that there are parts of the economy that are extremely weak. The uh, different industries, the agricultural industry, uh, automobile industry, there are other industries that are strong. Uh, the stock market has been a two-tiered market. Primarily consumer-related stocks have been leading the way, and a lot of the higher capitalization stocks have been lagging. So, uh, you know, that's some, some as far as work is concerned, that's something that I, I would want to get in more, but I'm not really qualified to talk about. Perhaps Dan could add something. Well, this is this is an area of ongoing discussion. It's a very mm-hmm. good question. Um, we're all just seeing pieces of it, but I know that there have been some major mergers recently, and so if you have the same amount of dollars chasing a fewer number of companies, it's going to be pushing the prices up for mm-hmm. that that group. Uh, I was also going to add one other point. I hear some things bandied about quite a bit. To, I can set the record straight. First of all, some people think that stock traders or commodity traders on the floors manipulate prices. And I would like to say that generally we are manipulated by huge orders that hit us like a wave hitting a surfer on the beach. We could be standing there one minute with having bought something and then the next minute a huge wave of selling will hit you. So although there are little jiggles during the day, by and large we are reacting to the large orders that come into a pit. So I think it's more of uh, crying sour grapes when people say that they lost money because there were people manipulating it. They may have been trading too short term or whatever. Second thing I would say is with all the people starting to use computers trading in the markets now, it's funny how they seem to give the same signals very often. And yet over the long haul, supply and demand overcome anything that would keep us from having a true state of what the prices should be. Those things are just sort of bumps on the road. Are we having a shift in what indicates market health? In other words, it used to be that rails and a few other things were the major index, but now it seems to be shifting to other areas. Would you like to comment on that? 
Well, if you could find the Judas goat that leads everybody else, he'd be a millionaire, and that's one of the big areas of research. What are the leading indicators? What are the concurrent indicators? What are the lagging indicators? Uh, some people look at stock groups, uh, an industry group, airlines, you know, drugs, technologies. Uh, James mentioned that the consumer-oriented stocks have been the biggest gainers. The Dow Jones 30 industrials, even though there are only 30 companies out of over 10,000 stocks that are listed on all the exchanges, yet they have approximately one-third of all the investment dollars that are in the stock market. So that is a very good group to look at. Yes. And you've got 15 utilities and 20 transportations, those 65 comprising a very important indicator. Mm -hmm. so. Well, we're running out of time. I want to thank both of you for being with me today, and I think you've contributed a great deal to my insight into things. My uh, market is the local grocery store. <laughs> but uh, I think it's important for me to know the commodity and stock and bond markets because they have such a profound effect on all of us, including the work of Calcedon and the giving to Calcedon and the giving to churches. So we need to understand these things because they are important to our future. They are the circumstances of our life. And they tell us something about the health of the economy and of the country. Yes. Well, thank you both, and I look forward to seeing you both again very soon. Thank you, Rush. Thank you, Rush. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.